Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Good morning. Good to be with you all this morning. So every year, we um, highlight the Word of God and prayer. Uh, We want these things to be central to the life of our church for good reason. So this morning, we're going to take a close look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And my goal is that we would all leave here this morning with the impression that God's Word really should be central to us in our lives as believers not just individually, but corporately as a church as well. I want to leave us with the impression that God's Word truly is amazing, that you would be impressed with God's Word this morning afresh. Many of us have been around God's Word. We've been studying God's Word for much of our lives, and sometimes it's easy for these things to be taken for granted So may we come away impressed with God's word this morning, and that we would be compelled to a life of prayer in conjunction with God's word. So with that, as a little introductory statement, let me pray for us, and we'll continue on our way. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Where would we be without your word, how easy it is to take for granted, even that our culture around us has been greatly shaped by many principles and pieces of wisdom and revelation from your word, how we have benefited in so many different ways from your divine reality breaking into our reality. And yet, you call us to be transformed by the renewal of our mind more and more, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. We need your word. We need the cleansing of your word. We need your word to keep us from being taken captive by empty philosophies. We need your word, Lord, so that we would know you, so that we would fellowship with you more greatly, more deeply, more profoundly. So we ask, God, that you would compel us this morning to a life of meditation, of pondering, of memorization on your word. If we come up with any New Year's resolution, Lord, may it be this, that your word would be more central to our lives in 2018. So I ask, Lord, for your help this morning, and I ask for your grace. And we pray, Lord, that you would truly make us into a people of your word and of prayer. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So I want to start off with an introductory list of questions here. And these are tough questions, not going to lie. 
They're tough for me. Are you a thankful person? What would your spouse or kid say to that before you quickly jump to an answer? What about your boss or your coworkers? What would they say? Are you a thankful person? Are you known by what you love or what you're excited about? Do you love to talk about the gospel and the implications of the gospel? Are you given to endless trivialities? Are you known by what you love or excited about or what you dislike or what you are peeved by, what you're frustrated by or what you criticize? How are you known? Now, interestingly, Paul does not address complaining in this passage, per se. He addresses sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, crude joking, filthiness, foolish talk. He says to these things, let there be none of this. Now, if I were writing this, and if you were writing this, I don't think any of us would actually turn the direction that Paul turns in this situation. I'm going to invite you to roll out your scrolls, take your quill in hand, dip it in ink, and I'm going to ask you, how would you finish verse 4? Right? He says, let there be no sexual immorality, no impurity, no covetousness. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be what? Well, we know what the answer is, if you were paying attention. What would you write there? I'll tell you what I would write. Where my mind goes when he's talking about immorality, perhaps, instead, let there be purity. He's talking about impurity. Instead, to counter that, let there be purity, right? Let there be righteousness. Let there be modesty, perhaps. Let there be loveliness. Let there be, and I think, I think this is the one where I would settle on, Let there be holiness. Pursue holiness. Don't let there be sexual immorality. Don't let there be impurity. Don't let there be crude joking. The opposite of that would be what? Holiness, right? That's where my mind would go. Um, Paul says, let there be thanksgiving. Hmm. That's interesting. Now, I don't want to obscure here a, 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 a simple passage Maybe this isn't all that complicated after all. Paul's simply saying, don't let there be crude joking among you. Instead, out of your mouth should flow thanksgiving. Simple enough, right? Let's all go home. Let's call it a day. You know, if, you, if that's the only thing that you get from this, then that's great. Be thankful. However, I prepared a meal for us this morning. We're going to sit around at this table and eat it, all right? So let's, uh, let's dine together, let's devour this word together, because I still think that Thanksgiving isn't the obvious choice here. I think it's a little bit of a curveball, if you will. So I think we need to ask the question. I ask the question of myself. I want to invite you to wrestle with the question, why does Paul go to Thanksgiving? What does he see here? Why does Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, See, that thanksgiving is the solution to the issues of these issues in the life of the church. Why is thanksgiving the antidote to the likes of sexual immorality and impurity and crude joking and the list goes on? My hope is to provide an answer to this. 
And that as we look into it, that we'll come to a deeper appreciation of God for his word as it relates to us and as it makes sense of our experience on a whole new profound level. So, let's roll up our sleeves. I invite us to think very carefully about this passage together this morning. Now, we've already established that the opposite of sexual immorality, of filthiness, of impurity, of crude joking, might be something along the lines of purity or holiness. Now, this isn't mentioned. It's not the direction that Paul goes here. However, maybe we would be helped to look at the opposite of what Thanksgiving is. What is the opposite of Thanksgiving? Ungratefulness. Perhaps it's complaining. Perhaps it's discontentment. Maybe now we're starting to get somewhere. In other words, Paul is saying something really profound here. He's saying that the issue that the Ephesians are facing isn't necessarily an issue of crude joking. What he's saying is that it's an issue that's related to thankfulness or lack thereof. Hmm. He's saying that the reason that they are caught in crude joking or sexual immorality or the other things is because they lack thankfulness, they lack contentment. That their pursuit of sexual immorality or one would pursue that is because they lack contentment. The reason a person resorts to these things is because they are pursuing contentment and they lack that in their hearts. And these things that he lists here, that there should be none of, are merely expressions of ungratefulness and discontentment. Now, this is a profoundly helpful diagnosis of the human condition, brothers and sisters. A diagnosis that I don't think we would be able to arrive at on our own. I think we would probably come up with a lot of different solutions, but I don't think that we'd come up with this that it's a lack of contentment. There is another profound diagnosis being offered here that I want to alert you to. The human heart, it's this, the human heart will search for contentment. It will search for joy. Won't it? Even if it has to find it in all the wrong places. Sexual immorality, crude joking, what are these things? But the pursuit of joy and fulfillment, the pursuit of contentment. You've heard the saying, looking for love in all the wrong places. You guys heard that one? Sinners look for joy. Sinners look for contentment in all the wrong places. This is one of the symptoms of being a sinner. By the way, I have believers and unbelievers in mind when I say that. Scripture addresses us as believers who are prone to being deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. That's why it warns you, don't be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. Because it's easy to be deceived. It's easy to think that I'm going to find my joy here, and it's not there. Jeremiah 2.13 and 14 says... My people have committed two evils. This is God's people. God's people have committed two evils. What are they? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. 
What have they done? They've hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can't hold water. A cistern is a giant hole dug into the earth, and it's meant to store water. But the problem was mud melted into the water, polluting it. And even more problematic was that the cistern couldn't hold water. It would seep through and it would dry out. It was a false hope, you see. And what Paul, or I'm sorry, what Jeremiah was addressing in his day was the people searching for joy, searching for hope, and false gods. And in the process, they were forsaking the living God, the one who had everything to offer them. They said, no, thank you. We'll find it elsewhere. And he says, this is actually evil. This is God's definition of evil. Forsaking him, the life giver, for things that aren't life giving. God is the one who provides. God is the living God. God is the one who delivers hope and joy and everything that we need for contentment and thankfulness. So I want to I want to make the case here. This is a bit of a profound or I'm sorry, a provocative point. I'm going to say that what Paul is not actually saying is that we need to be thankful. He's not actually saying you need to be thankful. Well, it seems like it's pretty obvious here Pastor Kevin. He says let there be thanksgiving. All right? Okay, so yes, I'm not, I'm not denying that. But I think he's making a more profound point here. What could it be? I think what he's saying is that thankfulness is the natural overflow for the person who knows God. I think that's the point that he's saying. He's saying that if you know God and you know his love, Thankfulness is the natural overflow. This is a little bit different than saying, you ought to be thankful. Verse 1 and 2, if you would join me there. Let's go back and trace Paul's line of thinking here. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Why should we be imitators of God? Well, we're his children, and children resemble their parents, don't they? God made it that way. Whether you like it or not, Your children resemble you, or you resemble your parents. If we were to walk in a room similar to this, not knowing anybody, we put the children on one side, we put the parents on the other side, I would imagine that with a high degree of success, we would be able to line up all the kids with their parents. Would you guys agree with that? Because children resemble their parents. We are God's children, you see. We ought to resemble our Father. But there's something more that he says here. He says that you're not just any old child, that you are actually a beloved child. You are loved by your heavenly Father with an everlasting, pure, holy love. So he calls us to be imitators of God because you are beloved children. And then in verse 2, what does he say? Walk in love. Why should we walk in love? Why ought we to walk in love? Because Christ loved us. Christ loved you. And what else did he do? He gave himself up for you. Do you see that the foundation for why God says you should be like me, that you should walk in love, is because I have first loved you? And what? So the point that I'm making here 
is that, okay, so we, we, see, we see love. It's very obvious. To, what does it mean to be an imitator of God? What is he calling us to? He's calling us to a life of love. We look at the attributes of God. We look at the attributes of him as a loving God. Now that makes sense. We can imitate that to each other, right? We can imitate love. And then let's go through some of the other attributes that we know of God. This is interesting to me. I thought about this as I meditated on this. What are some of the attributes that we know of God? His holiness, his understanding, his patience. He's almighty. He's the creator, right? How many of you, I mean, I've never really heard much about the thanksgiving of God as an attribute of God, right? I know that we see instances in Jesus' life where he is thankful, he gives thanks to his Father, but I've never broadly heard much about God being the thankful God. So how do we imitate God in this case as, a, as, as he provides? And here's my point. I know, I think some of you are a little confused right now. I'm going to try to bring this home. I'm going to connect Paul's charge to be thankful, right? And here's here's what I'm getting at. God is loving. We can imitate God in his love. That's pretty straightforward. But where does Thanksgiving fit into that? How does Thanksgiving connect to imitating God? And here's the way that I would answer that. If somebody gives you a gift that you can't repay, how do you respond to them? With gratitude, with thankfulness. He's making the case here that God has loved you, that God has given his son for you. The only thing to do in response to that is what? Thank him! To be gratitude towards him, to show gratitude towards him. This is how we imitate the God who gives. The natural response is, thank you. I show gratitude towards you. I hope that makes sense. So I go back to the point that I made earlier. Paul isn't exactly telling us, waking his finger at it, saying, you better be thankful or else. I think what he's really saying is that thankfulness is as much a part of the Christian identity as being loved by the living God is. Do you see that? Being a child of God and being thankful go hand in hand like apple pie and vanilla ice cream. Mmm, yum. Or how about a juicy hamburger and a Coke? And here's one that almost none of you will be able to disagree with. Chocolate chip cookies right out of the oven and a cold glass of milk. So Paul isn't necessarily saying, you ought to be thankful. What he's saying is, don't you realize you have a heavenly father who loved you. He gave his son for you. The only response to that is thanksgiving, gratitude, They go hand in hand. You can't separate those two. Before God calls believers to do anything for him, what does he do? He calls us to know something. What does he want us to know? He's not so much calling his people to be thankful 
as much as he is first calling them to know that they are children of the living God. Don't you see? You're a child of the living God who loves you. He gave himself for you. He calls them to know the basic truth of Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So Paul argues in Romans, he argues here, that being unthankful is simply unfitting. Why? Because he has given you everything that he has to give you and the very best of what he could possibly give you, namely his son. And if you, if you have everything you need to satisfy you, therefore you have everything that you need to be thankful in all circumstances of life. Believers ought to be marked by thanksgiving. We don't have to dig up for ourselves the broken cisterns of sexual immorality, of impurity. We don't have to push the lines into these areas to find joy, to find hope, to find meaning, to find fulfillment. The natural response as a believer is to simply take what God has given, to understand that, and to respond to him with, thank you, I have everything I need. I don't need to push the line of sexual immorality to get something more. He's given us everything already in his son. So perhaps the question that we ought to be asking ourselves isn't exactly, are you a thankful person? What's the question maybe we should ask ourselves? I think it's this. Do you understand who you are? Do you understand who God is? Do you understand what he has done for you? Do you really? No, I know, I know all of you would say, yeah, yeah, I got that, yeah. Here's the thing. When we lack thankfulness, and we all do, it is a kind of declaration right, that God isn't enough for me. And it's proof that something about the reality of God and his love for you has not actually connected with you. The Bible calls this unbelief, right? We believe in Jesus. Most of us in this room would say, yes, I believe in Jesus. But that doesn't mean that we never struggle with unbelief. And what is unbelief other than the lack of faith that God actually isn't enough for me? The refusal to believe or the, 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 say, say the void in our faith where we're not actually connecting the dots and the reality of God and who he is and what he's done for you has not truly connected. And therefore, we do search for joy, we search for fulfillment, we search for satisfaction elsewhere other than him. So the real question should be, instead of, are you a thankful person, perhaps is, where are there disconnects in your faith? Where are there disconnects in your understanding of who God is? Where am I failing to understand that I am God's child? And how am I failing to experience the richness and the reality of God's love for me that leads me to seek fulfillment elsewhere? I hope, so the connection that I'm trying to make is that the reason why Paul is saying we ought to be thankful as opposed to sexual immorality and the like is because 
The pursuit of sexual immorality is the pursuit to find joy in something that God has already provided. There's no need to find it there. Now for the unbeliever who is not a beloved child, who does not have a savior, who gave himself up for them, and I would say the reason why an unbeliever doesn't have the savior is because they're rejecting their savior. If you're in that boat this morning, don't reject your savior. Receive your savior. He died for you. He bled for you. He holds his hands out and invites you, come to me, become a child of God. But if you don't have this Savior who gave himself for you, sexual immorality and crude joking and filthiness are the expected pursuit of contentment. I think that's the reverse of what Paul is saying. Since they don't have the living God to satisfy them, They find their satisfaction, satisfaction, ultimately their destruction, in the emptiness of idolatry. Taking something that the living God has designed in glory and twisting it, trying to squeeze out every last ounce of satisfaction that could possibly be had from it. And it always comes up short, however, leaving them in a pit of discontentment and ungratefulness. In verse 5, Paul makes it clear that sexual immorality is ultimately a form of idolatry. This is an issue of worship, you see. Remember the Israelites? When Moses went to, goes to meet with God and he leaves Aaron in charge, what do they do? They make an idol, a golden calf. Do you guys remember that story? Do you know what went along with that? Sexual immorality. You have to read a little bit closely throughout scriptures. But just like thankfulness goes hand in hand together with worshiping the living God, so sexual immorality goes hand in hand with idolatry. Throughout the scriptures, we see that there is this connection between sexual immorality and idol worship. Why is this? Why is this? Here's one possible answer. When you worship a God who doesn't love you, who doesn't save you, who doesn't provide for you, it's the natural thing to turn to the thing that promises you the best reward, and that is sex. Sexual immorality is frequently tied to idol worship because idols are false. They can't provide. They can't love you. And they cannot save you. So what does the worshiper of an idol have to do? They have to turn to their best opportunity to get something in return. They need to be supplemented, the idol does, with the thing that at face value promises them the best reward. So I would say this is why Paul doesn't tackle the sin of impurity in, the case, in this case by saying, you're struggling with impurity? Pursue purity. He doesn't say that. Instead, the Bible goes deeper. The Bible says you don't have a problem with impurity. Impurity. Your problem isn't with crude joking, actually. 
Your problem isn't with sexual immorality. Your problem is a worship problem. You're failing to understand the living God and what he's done for you. And if you understood that, thanksgiving. And what does thanksgiving communicate but the satisfaction that I have everything I need in God. I don't need to supplement it with the best thing the world has to offer me, sexual immorality. I don't need to supplement. I've got it all in God. I think that's why Paul goes to where he goes. That's why he takes the turn to thanksgiving. Something about our knowledge of God and who God is is breaking down for us when we struggle with these things, when we push the line into how far can I go? If you want to battle the impurities in your life, start with who is God to me? I know that sounds like a really new agey way to kind of put it. But how am I experiencing God? Do I know him as the living God who gave himself for me, who loves me, who sent his son to die for me, who has given me the very best of what he could possibly give me, and with him, all things? Do I have everything I need in God? Am I satisfied by God? That's where I think Paul is saying, start there. Do you know his love? Do you? Are you satisfied in his love? What does the death and resurrection of Jesus really mean to you? So as I conclude here, I want to close um, by telling you why I chose this passage. I know this is a little bit of an odd passage, perhaps, for a Sunday where we're exalting the word of God in prayer. Why did I choose this passage? Because I think, rather than tell you or talk to you about how awesome God's word is, then I would just show you. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. I think we see this at work in Ephesians 5, 1-5. I think we see the word of God pressing into us in a way that makes sense of my inner man, the way that no psychologist ever could. And these five verses, these passages tell me that I'm a worshiper at heart. And i got to understand that if I'm going to understand life around me and I understand myself. And why I do the things that I do. It starts with, you're a worshiper. It starts with God. Are you worshiping him or are you worshiping an idol? It gives me perspective in that sphere. This passage tells me that the issues of my life are actually issues of worship. You struggle with crude joking, with endless trivialities, with sexual immorality of any kind, they're worship issues at the core. They're related to what I am actively believing of God and what I'm actively not believing of God, where there's unbelief creeping into my heart. It tells me that impurity isn't my issue, but the issue is that I need to know God better and believe in him more profoundly. It tells me that as a worshiper, 
I long for joy and fulfillment, and I will find it some way, somewhere, somehow. It warns me of the ways that I'm a sinner and I'm prone to being deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. It shows me that thankfulness is the mark of a Christian because a Christian is one who is accepted by their creator and in him they have everything that they could need for true contentment. It shows, it shows how the world has taken the good things of God, sex, and twisted it to their own lusts and tried to find joy in that mangled mess. And needless to say, it does warn also that this will not only be destructive, but it will be a fruitless endeavor as well. This passage comes to me and confronts me as a sinner. But it also comforts me as a sufferer and leads me to the cross. How does it lead me to the cross? It leads me to the cross by saying, you have a Savior who loved you and gave himself up for you. And it tells me that all true gratitude and thankfulness and contentment comes as an outflowing of the cross. So we don't have Paul wagging his finger at us in a legalistic way saying, you ought to be thankful. No, it says, you know what? Let me lead you to the cross. Let me lead you to your Savior, where he died for you, where he laid his life down, where he gave himself up for you. And if you understand that, oh, Christian, would you please just understand that? And if you understand that, you'll be flowing with thanksgiving. You'll be flowing with gratitude. You won't need the stuff of the earth. Do you see how Paul preaches the gospel to your soul? How he avoids legalism? Oh, I love it. I love that. I love that. Because we hate legalism. Can I get an amen on that? God's word is truly divine. It breaks into our reality. It pierces our heart. It confronts me as a sinner. It comforts me as a sufferer in this world. It leads me to the cross of Jesus and gives me every reason I could ever find to be filled with thanksgiving. And I think this passage is a great example of why we need to meditate on God's word. How easy would it be to just read these five verses? Oh, yeah, yeah, got it. Be thankful. When Paul is saying something so much profoundly more, God's word is truly living and active, but it demands to be treated with this level of attention if it is to have its life-giving effects on our hearts. And our world isn't doing us any favors, right? We have a smartphone now, and it's just exasperated a problem. We already have an attention span problem, right? Now our smartphones enter the picture. I don't want to like needlessly harp on our smartphones, but I do want to warn us that this thing that we rely on that is basically my third hand or my third eyeball or my second brain, right? This thing trains you and demands that you be distracted. Ding! I ding. Didn't you hear it? Answer it. Answer! Okay. I was talking to God, but I dinged. Right? 
You're praying for your day. Gee, I wonder what the weather's going to be like. Don't you know I have the answer right here? I got it. Just a few clicks away. Come on, come on. Do it. Do it. All right. Oh, it's going to be 100 below. (laughs) Right? You're thinking about your you're thinking about your day again. Oh, I I have to I have to contact that person. Don't you know I have that contact info in here? You can get it done right now. Come on, Kev, get her done. Contact them. Drop whatever you're doing. Do this instead. Do you realize our phone distracts you? It demands your it demands that you be distracted. It has so many wonderful capabilities. It takes you by the neck and says, "Come on, we're going to do it my way." It doesn't have to be that way, by the way. But it is something, a reality that we have to live with in this world. I just want us to be aware of it. I do. I want us to be aware of it because I want us to treasure God's Word. And God's Word is not microwavable. It requires time. It requires meditation. It requires, I would say, memorization It requires that we join prayer along our time with it. We don't come to these kinds of insights without praying. God, help me to see glorious things in your word. I need your help. Please help me to be not distracted. Please help me to not be a slave to my phone. I'm going to put this thing over here. Your word is going to be central I'm going to pray to you and I'm going to ask that you show me something from your word. Because when we interact with God's word in a deep way, we interact with God. So I trust that this message has compelled us to the seriousness and the centrality that God's word should have in a believer's life. Let me make two practical takeaways. Examine your relationship towards God's word. Do you regularly read the Bible? Do you spend time meditating on it? That's the key one. Do you meditate on God's word? Do you have a crockpot soul where it's just stewing in there? And then there's the aroma of Christ just wafting out. Do you feel like you have the skills that you need or would like to have to draw things out of it? Because if not, there's resources. There's Bible studies. There's training that could be had. I encourage you to be really honest with where you're at, with how you feel about it. If you feel like, hey, you know what? I don't really have time for it. I feel like it's actually a waste of time because I read it and I don't get anything out of it. It's hard for me. You know what? I want to say something to that person right now. So please listen. If you're in the category of, you know what, I really don't read God's word all that much, hardly at all, because I kind of feel like it's a waste of time, you can be honest with yourself about that. And I think start developing habits in prayer and in trust. Perhaps talk to somebody else, maybe find somebody that you can study God's word with, because when you do it by yourself, It doesn't help you, but when you have two sets of eyeballs on the same passage, find a mentor, find somebody 
that you look up to and say, hey, you know what, that person seems like they have it somewhat together. Maybe I can meet with them and read God's word together with them and find insights on it and meditate on it with them. I don't want to legalistically wag my finger at you and make you feel incompetent or look down on you if you're in that category. I really don't. And I realize that in a sermon like this, that could easily happen. And I don't want to do that. All right? I don't want this to be the Christian club where it's like if you're not spending, you know, minimum hour and a half a day, well, that's, you're not really going to be a part of it. I don't want that feeling. Okay, last thing. If you're in that category, I think all of us, this relates to all of us, but especially if you're in that last category that I talked about, would you consider memorizing God's word? I would say, if I went and surveyed all of you and asked you, do you think scripture memory is a value that we should have? I would imagine all of you would say, yeah. But I would say that the percentage would be much lower, right? Are you regularly disciplining yourself to memorize God's word? Would you guys agree with that? We might get like near 100%. Yeah, it's a value. But then what would that number be if we went through and said, are you actually regularly memorizing God's word? It'd go down. What if we close that gap? There's a couple of resources in the life of our church that I want to make known to you. One is this book that we use for our Sunday school. This is for preschool up through grade five. And all of these verses are selected to go along with the curriculum that we're teaching our kids about the glory of God. So that by the end, they would have scripture tucked away in their hearts that point them to the greatness and the worth of God. But scripture memory, I would argue, is not just for kids. Some of you guys would say, I'm not a good memorizer. And I would say back to you, that's a That's a lousy excuse. I thought I might get a chuckle out of that. You know why it's a lousy excuse? Because it's a lousy excuse. How many minutes a day do you think you'd have to spend to memorize Revelation 5, 12, and 13? I would say if you just woke up every morning and spent one minute just reading it, reading it every single day, you'd have it down. If you spent two, you'd be the gold elite club. Okay, so I want to encourage us to memorize God's word because why? It's a great starting place. If you're struggling with getting into God's word, memorizing is a built-in mechanism that forces you to meditate and ponder on what you're thinking. When I memorize scripture, when I beat this into my brain, when I struggle to know and to remember scripture, insights start happening. Light bulbs start going off. I start to love God's word more. Some of you struggle with, oh, I don't really love God's word. Well, you're not going to love it by not reading it. I'll tell you that. And you're not going to love it by not memorizing it and meditating on it and pondering it. That's not going to get you anywhere. That's not going to move you in the right direction. So would you consider memorizing God's word? 
And you know, as I thought about this, as I thought about this charge, I thought, wouldn't it be nice if there was like a scripture memory program? Where they had like five years of scripture outlined and they selected like scriptures that you'd want to memorize to fight the fight of faith, to know God and to know how we should respond to him. Wouldn't that be great if there was like a system out there? And wouldn't it even be great if they had like cards and stacks that you could use in your house or even better, an app on your phone? What if there was a system like that that made it easy for us to memorize scripture? Wouldn't that be awesome? And then I realized, we have that. It's called the fighter verses. And you know what I discovered this week? I want to share this. Okay, so I slammed the the smartphone. Now I'm going to praise the smartphone because it has wonderful opportunities. And kids up in the back row, not kids, teens, I want you to listen to this, all right? You guys have a smartphone? Okay, so I realized that they have the verse. And if you go down here to quizzes, there's different, like, games you can play. All right, so if you do quick blanks, you can choose your level one, two, three, or five. We'll go to level two, and it has blanks. And you read along, and then when you press it, the word pops in there in that blank. And you can go through, and you can dot it and get the verse. They're making it so easy for us, brothers and sisters. It's $3, but I think it's worth the $3. Guys, I want to encourage us to memorize Scripture in 2018, and I want to invite us to do the fighter verse system. Your elders are calling you to do this system. Why? Because we know it's good for you as individuals. This will build in a mechanism of just meditating and pondering God's Word. But it will do something else as well. Could you imagine the strength and the power of a church that is corporately memorizing God's Word together? Would that bring more power, more unity, more centrality of God's word, more God-word thinking into the life of the church? Yes or no? Okay, I got some nods this way. I'll take that as a yes. Yes, it would. So I want to encourage us to think about that, to think about bringing God's word into your heart through scripture memory. Now, we're not going to come after you with our red pens and figure out who is and who isn't doing the fighter verses, but we invite you to that. I want you to consider that. All right, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, for your divine revelation as it is to us in scripture. We pray, Lord God, that we would learn to love your word as a church, as a people. We pray, Father, that you would fill us with joy in knowing your word. But we don't want to just know your word to know your word. We want to know you. We want to experience the joy of knowing you. We want to experience the joy of understanding all the wonderful implications of our salvation in Christ We want to be fed as your people. We want to be filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us. We pray after a charge like this um, that we would seriously examine our hearts, that we would seriously examine where our priorities are. 
And perhaps the fighter verse system isn't right for everyone, but maybe you would call some to make that commitment and to see it as a life-giving entryway into a deeper, more meaningful meditation on Scripture, your holy word. And I pray that there would be loads and loads of fruit that comes in the life of this church because of that. We pray, Lord, that we would be marked as a people who cherish and treasure your word, that when we're squeezed by the temptations and the trials of life, that godly thinking would ooze out of us because we have your word hidden in our hearts. We pray that when we encounter joy and triumph and success, that we would be bound by your word and we would give glory to God so that in good or in difficulty, Lord, we would have a way of thinking about that as it relates to you, as it is revealed by you. So we pray, Lord, that you would make us a people that love your word, that cherish it together. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.